Let's pick up reading in verse 20. Daniel 9, verse 20. The 77s of Daniel, or 70 weeks as is commonly interpreted, but again in Hebrew it's 77s. Some unspecified unit of time. Uh, while I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy uh, mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. So this is the answer to the prayer that Daniel prayed in verses 1 to 19. Uh, and he's actually even going to get more than he bargained for. Uh, verse 23, At the beginning of your supplications a word went out, and I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people in your holy city. And notice the, there's going to be six infinitival phrases that describe what the decree is meant to accomplish or what it is. Number one, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one or a holy of holies, literally. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to re restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease. And in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. Now folks, this is admittedly one of the most difficult portions in the entirety of the Old Testament that we could look at. Uh, there is very little agreement between scholars as to how this passage is to be viewed. Okay? Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, said even at his time, uh, there were at least nine different interpretations of this passage. At least nine. If you get scholars together today, you would have virtually no agreement on what these verses are teaching us. Now, with that said, however, I do want us to say 
that today there are three main schools of thought which summarize all of the various positions. Now, where it gets more complicated is that within each of those three main schools of thought, there are variations to each one of them and variations of the variations. Now, all of that should tell us something. We are dealing with a very difficult and disputed passage of Scripture. There is no way, probably, I'm going to satisfy everybody's curiosity tonight and thoughts on this passage. Now, what adds to the confusion is many people will change their views after studying this passage even more which I've done myself, and I might do again, okay? Let me say this. No one's salvation is at stake depending on where you fall within the three main perspectives, okay? So take a chill pill if somebody doesn't agree with you, okay? We're talking about positions that fall within orthodoxy. So again, if you talk to somebody, don't agree with you on this, extend a little grace and charity. Now, there are some principles that are true for all three schools of thought, which are the takeaways that we're going to look at from these verses. I'm going to start there, as a matter of fact. Uh, and really so that we don't walk away from studying this passage with a hopelessness in our hearts, thinking that we can't learn anything from this passage, because who can understand it? I, I want you to see up front that there are some principles that are woven in here which speak volumes to us. And these principles are going to be valid whichever school of thought you fall into. And so again, we're going to start and we're going to end with these principles. I've reduced them down to five. And we'll go over all of these before we get into the main perspectives. So just hold off a while on the chart. We're going to get into these principles first. Principle number one, God answers the prayers of the righteous. Don't divorce these verses from their context. Daniel has been praying. And we looked at that prayer last week. And where he was confessing his sin and the sin of his people, he realizes the 70 years of exile are about over. And according to Jeremiah's prophecy, that means that his people are getting ready in just a few years to be able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that motivates him to start praying and confessing the sins of the people because their sins are what got them in the mess to begin with. Why do we sometimes not have answers to our prayers? Because we know that God answers the prayers of the righteous. Why might we not sometimes feel like our prayers are answered? Well, Isaiah 59 is going to tell us it's because of our sin. That the Lord's arm is not too short to save. But Isaiah 59 says it's your sins that have separated you from your God and He does not hear 
So sin is not dealt with in your life. It could be a reason why your prayers may not be answered the way Daniel's was here. James 4 says your prayers may not be answered because you're praying with the entire, entire wrong motives. You're praying for things that you might get things from God to consume upon your own lust. You're praying for worldly things. And James says that's another reason people don't experience answered prayer. John in 1 John 5 says another reason why people don't ex experience answered prayers because they're not praying according to the will of God. That would be much like what James is saying. And John says in 1 John 5 that if we are praying according to the will of God, then we can be assured that He hears us. And if He hears us, then we have the request that we have asked of Him. Uh, now remember, as a context here, Daniel had been reading Jeremiah the prophet, and he was thinking in terms of the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah had said that God would send the people of Judah away into exile in Babylon for 70 years. So again, he's read that, he knows that, and as I said a moment ago, he knows the time is almost over. And so Gabriel responds by going into detail, talking about 70 sevens. Many Bible expositors agree that the 77s here describe 70 weeks of years. How long is 70 weeks of years? 70 times 7 equals 490 years. Some scholars are greatly opposed that they just think the 70 being a number of completions, uh, 7s and 70s is is a stated, specified amount of time, a complete amount of time. And so they would caution us against putting actual years to it. But many say it, it equals 490 years. And so the angel is telling Daniel that a period of 490 years will pass before God's purposes for Israel are complete with what he's doing here. That was a much larger subject than had originally been on Daniel's mind. Daniel's thinking, how soon are we going to return to our homeland? Well, God's going to go beyond that. So again, God answers the prayers of the righteous. Number two, God is in charge of history where he unfolds his plan. He works within history accomplishing his purposes. Folks, history is not because of fate. God is not the God of deism. You know, the divine clockmaker that created the world, wound it up like a clockmaker would make a clock, wind it up, sit it up on a mantle, and just walk away from it. Deists believe God created things with natural laws. He wound up the universe, and everything the universe needed to operate on natural laws God wound everything up and he walked away from it. And whatever happens is because of what men and nations do. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. God's the divine conductor. He's involved in his creation. He's sovereign over nations. And we see that here. 
A third principle, God allows bad things to happen which do not jeopardize his plans and purposes. Now, atheists would have us believe that if God allows bad things to happen, it must be because God doesn't exist. They seem to ignore that God created a world that was good, man screwed it up, and the Bible tells the story of how God is redeeming a creation that is now set upon evil, and one day He is going to restore it to only good. But in the meantime, He even uses evil and bad to work out His purposes. His ways are higher than our ways. A fourth principle. God will bring about victory for His people in the end. Evil will only be allowed for a determined amount of time. Aren't you glad of that? Bad and evil and sin has an expiration date. Hallelujah. A fifth principle. All of this calls for faithfulness and persistence on the part of God's people. We should not assume that God's purposes are going to be worked out quickly and painlessly. Some people assume that for God to be real and for, for Him to truly love His children, only good things are supposed to come their way. Now folks, obviously these folks must have not read their Bibles. I mean, Joseph went to prison for something he didn't do and stayed there until God had him delivered. And God had a purpose and plan all that. <laughs> Moses was in the desert for 40 years and then had to suffer with the rest of God's people. And he himself never got to enter into the promised land. Daniel was captured and taken to Babylon for the rest of his life. In all probability, Daniel never saw his homeland again. Peter and Paul died for their faith in Christ. The Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Folks, we live in a fallen world. God's eventually going to bring this age to a close, but until then, guess what? Christians get sick and die. Families split up. Families are oftentimes a mess. Mm -hmm. And it happens in Christians' lives too. Mm -hmm. And again, what does this call for? Faithfulness and persistence mm -hmm. on the part of God's people. Now, I will have you look at that chart. And without getting lost in the chart, I want to simplify that chart even more. Because you see five columns there. But actually, those five columns represent three main views. The first view, the far left column, the Maccabean or the Antiochian column, says that everything in Daniel 9, 24-27 was fulfilled by the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This position says that Daniel 8, 
was about Antiochus IV, and it was. We looked at that. And Daniel 8 was about Antiochus uh, Epiphanes in a general way. And then guess what? Chapters 10 through 11 are once again going to pick up talking about Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, in general ways again. And so this first view says what chapter 9 does is zero in on the time of Antiochus IV in a more specific way. And so that chapters 8 through 11 are talking about the same person and the same crisis, the Antiochian crisis, with chapters 8 and 10 and 11 describing the Antiochian crisis in a general way, chapter 9 talking about it in a more specific way. The second view says that everything was fulfilled by 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In 70 AD, Roman armies under Titus came in and surrounded the city and its end came with the flood. Josephus, the Jewish historian who was present and saw it as an eyewitness, he records one of the most horrible sieges in all of history. He describes the terrible days in which Jerusalem was under siege uh, by the Roman armies, how starvation and uh, famine stalked the streets of the city. People died by the hundreds. Bodies were stacked up in the streets like cordwood. Uh, mothers ate their own children in order to survive. Moms, you ever feel like eating your children? <laughs> they behave, I mean, misbehaving. <laughs> well, they did that. Uh, but finally, Josephus says the city was overthrown. The walls were breached and the Romans entered in and they were so angry by the stubborn resistance of the Jews that they disobeyed the orders of their general and they burned the temple, they melted the gold and silver so it ran down between the cracks of the stones. In order to get the metal, they pried the stones apart with bars and thus fulfill the Lord's prediction that not one stone would be left standing upon another. That happened in 70 AD. And remember, Jesus in Luke 19 said it would happen to them because they had rejected the time of their visitation. He had come to them, their Messiah had come to them. And they rejected him. Because they rejected him, they would keep picking fights with the Romans and resisting the Romans until finally the Romans came in and destroyed them. But had they accepted Jesus, they would have seen that his kingdom is not of this world and they wouldn't have resisted the Romans like they did. The third view sees Christ fulfilling some of this passage, but much remains to be fulfilled by the future Antichrist. You'll notice that third view, there are 
several different ways what I've given you three columns, three different nuances to that third way, the eschatological view. You see that? Three different columns. The middle column, the column second from the right, and then the far right column representing the dispensational position. But all of those fall under that eschatological view, the third view. And so I hope this chart will help you see the three main schools of thought. Uh, the Maccabean view, the Roman view, and the eschatological view. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, you're with me. Now, you'll notice that with the exception of the first school of thought, the others will focus on Jesus somewhere in their scheme of things. The first school, the Maccabean or Antiochian school, does not. It sees everything fulfilled by Antiochus IV. Now, folks, let me say that this view, even though I'm going to choose one of the other views to be my favorite, okay? This view, in my opinion, has much in its favor. Especially if you add to it that it's typological. What do I mean by that? In other words, if you leave open the possibility that the pattern that you see in this first view is going to play out time and time again through history with other characters. Other characters like Jesus and the Romans and the future Antichrist. So there's a, there's a school of thought in this first view that says it, it's said and done before we ever get to the New Testament. It's said and done with Antiochus IV. Everything in these verses in Daniel is fulfilled by the time we get to Antiochus IV. But the pattern we see in here with Antiochus IV and his evil interactions with the Jews, we're going to see that same pattern played out again and again throughout history. Okay? So this view has much to commend it. And plus, this view has the advantage, as I alluded to earlier, of keeping the context of chapters 8 through 11 together, which focus on Antiochus in the Maccabean Revolt. Is that clear? Okay. I think people in the first view... The Maccabean view would say, you know, if chapter 8 is talking about the Maccabean revolt with Antiochus, chapters 10 and 11 are too, then why in the world would you take chapter 9 and all of a sudden go far into the future and talk about Jesus and the Romans or even the future from our perspective today talking about a future Antichrist? Why, why would you do that in chapter, in a block 8 through 11 that clearly the context is the Maccabean revolt, why would you come along as some of the other schools do in chapter 9 and suddenly introduce a future element to it? 
I think it honestly presents the easiest, most straightforward way of fitting all of the pieces together in these verses. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm, again, I'm not saying it's my view, but I'm, I'm saying that in my mind, everything fits like a glove so easily. You look at the word that went out, 605, 586 B.C. Jeremiah's prophecy is... <laughs> believed to be the word that goes out when he first said that they would be 70 years in, in exile. The first anointed one that it talks about when it says, know therefore in verse 25 and, uh, and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince. Remember, Cyrus Zerubbabel and Joshua were all spoken of in the Old Testament as God's anointed. In Isaiah 45 verse 1, God even referred to Cyrus as his anointed and the Hebrew word there is Messiah, little m. Okay? So this would say that first anointed is referring to either Cyrus, Zerubbabel, or Joshua. Zerubbabel and Joshua being some of the priests that went back with the exiles. And then if you turn your page over, hang on unless you have a question related to this, I don't want to get caught up in weeds yet. Okay. If you'll turn over, uh, 62 weeks would be from 538, which is Cyrus's decree, all the way down to 170 B.C. when the temple was reconsecrated after Antiochus had defiled it. The second anointed, go back to verse 25, there shall be seven weeks and for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat but in a troubled time after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Onias third was the last truly legitimate high priest who was murdered. Onias third. he was a true priest according to all the qualifications of somebody having to be a priest. He was murdered in 170. So he, this position says, in all likelihood, he's the anointed one who is cut off and left with nothing. And then you read on there, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince who is to come would be none other than Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Because he did come in and wreak havoc on the Jews. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. He did that. He made a covenant with Hellenistic Jews. Antiochus wanted to strip Israel of its religious 
heritage and make them secular. And the Hellenization, making them, meaning making them more Greek, making them more secular from the time of Alexander the Great. He wanted to make them more like that. And guess what? There were some Jews who wanted the nation to go in that direction. They wanted the nation to go away from its godly roots and heritage. So he made a strong covenant with them. And guess what he did? After a short period of time after that covenant, he, he suddenly outlawed sacrifice and offering, made it cease. Read 1 Maccabees when you get home tonight. 1 Maccabees chapter 1. He made it against the law to have copies of God's Word. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed temple worship and sacrifices. He outlawed all of that. And if a mom had her little baby boy circumcised, he would kill the baby, hang it by a cord or chain around her neck and let its body decompose around her neck. She had to wear it and carry it. And then he had her led to the edge of a cliff and she and that baby, rotten baby around her neck would be thrown off the cliff and destroyed. He made sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desecrates. He set up an idol of Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was atrocious to the Jews. Until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. The Maccabean revolt happened. Judas Maccabeus. They finally... Remember Antiochus was killed not by men, but suddenly he was he heard of war back home. He went back and developed a, a, some type of intestinal infection and died a horrible death suddenly. Antiochus did. And through Judas Maccabeus and his brother, his dad, they that Maccabean revolt, they re-consecrated the temple. They poured the oil in the lamps and it lasted for eight days and Jews continue to celebrate that today through Hanukkah. So the temple was restored in 164 B.C. So he would be the covenant maker with the Hellenistic Jews. The 70th week uh, would refer to the time of persecution and then finally in 164 the temple being restored. Uh, now, if you hold to this first view, many evangelicals will oppose you for that. They'll act like you have denied prophecy of end times. And I, I don't understand that. If you hold to this view, you're not denying anything that the New Testament is going to go on and spell out. You're not denying the coming of the Messiah. You're not denying His death and resurrection. You're not denying the second coming. You're not denying the future Antichrist. The only thing you're saying is these particular verses in the context of eight chapters 8 through 11 have nothing to do with New Testament times. Uh, whether you agree with this position or not, I think it is a very natural reading of the text. It's a very legitimate way to interpret the passage. 
and it's faithful to the overall context and details. Uh, moving on, many evangelicals who are not dispensationalists hold to the Roman view. This may be my preferred view, perhaps. I may change by the time I go to bed tonight, but anyway. In the Roman view, there is no gap between the 69th and 70th week. They wonder where in the text would anybody think they have just cause exegetically for inserting a gap. Because they point out that everywhere else in Scripture, without exception, anytime there is a grouping of numbers like this, that grouping is to be viewed as a whole. And so why would anybody go up through 69 weeks and then say there's a pause and we're still in that pause today and the pause has gone four times longer than this entire 70 weeks in the other views goes on. What's the justification for doing that? These interpreters say that we are in the 70th week. The 70th week is the Jubilee. Now remember from Leviticus 25, after 49 years, you would go into the Jubilee year where all debts were forgiven and land reverted back to whomever it had been given originally. So what you have here in the 490 years, the 77s is 10 cycles. What's well, 10? A number of completeness. 10 cycles of 49 or a complete number of cycles before getting into the jubilee that Jesus Christ brings and the forgiveness that we have in Him. In Jesus, we are in the ultimate jubilee. In Christ, all debts are forgiven by His death and His people are finally free. Now, as you can see from the chart, the Roman view is messianic. A word went out would be one of the Persian decrees, either that by Cyrus or Darius or Artaxerxes. Uh, the first anointed would be Jesus, the 62 and 7, read as one unit. Uh, the decree, time of the decree, to some point in the life of Jesus. Now, these interpreters say that to anoint a most holy place in verse 24 is actually not the proper translation. But it's to anoint a holy one. And they believe this refers to the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus was baptized and God's voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. They think that that's what verse 24 refers to, to anoint a most holy one. Now this position also believes the anointed one who is both cut off and also makes a covenant is a reference to Jesus. Being cut off would be a reference to what? His crucifixion. 
And making a covenant is actually to be translated not making a covenant, but confirming a covenant. His death confirmed the new covenant instituted in his blood. Now, some of those who hold to this view would also say Jesus is the prince, the prince of the people who is the people who of the prince who are to come. Jesus is the prince that the people of the prince who is to come, who destroy the city, would be a reference to Jesus' people, the Jews. They would say that even though it was the Romans who destroyed the city. It was the Jews' rejection of Jesus that was the reason the Romans destroyed the city. So the Jews were accountable. Now others in this school of thought would say the prince is Titus, who brought his people, the Roman armies, to destroy the city, which they did in 70 A.D., so under the Roman view of this passage, it has all been fulfilled by 70 AD. In the first view, it's, it was all fulfilled by 164 BC. In the Roman view, Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, has all been fulfilled by 70 AD. But now many in this school, just like the first school, say yes, it's been fulfilled in its entirety, but it contains typology. There's this pattern again. What happened with Jesus being cut off and the Romans and Titus and the city and the temple being destroyed, that's going to happen again at the end with the Antichrist. So it, this is a pattern that God's people are going to continue to see. There's going to be future opponents and tyrants and so forth who bring untold trouble. But again, in both the Maccabean view and the Roman view, the passage is seen as being fulfilled. Either during the days of the Maccabean revolt by 164 B.C. or by 70 A.D. in New Testament times when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. Okay? Well, moving on. Under the eschatological view, many, particularly dispensationalists, will insert a gap, a pause, between the 69th seven and the 70th seven, and they say that we are in that gap right now, and the gap is the church age. The gap goes from the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem all the way up until some point in the future when the church is raptured out. And then when the church is raptured out, the clock that's been on pause is going to start ticking again with God dealing with the Jews during a seven-year tribulation, the 70th week. During this seven years, the temple will be rebuilt. Sacrifices like you see in the Old Testament are going to resume. The Antichrist will come on the scene. He will be the one to make a covenant with Israel. And after three and a half years, he will break this covenant. And the great tribulation of three and a half years will ensue, which is like the tribulation on steroids, 
And during this time, the Antichrist will also desecrate the Jewish temple just like Antiochus Epiphanes IV did back during the Maccabean Revolt period. Now the dispensationalist reads all of that into this text. All of that's not here as typology. They believe all of that is directly implied in these verses here. This is where a belief in a seven-year tribulation in a rebuilt Jewish temple comes from. It happens when the gap between the 69th and 70th week ends and the clock begins ticking for the Jewish people with God dealing with them again while the church has been raptured out. So at any rate, the dispensationalist says that most of this passage is yet to be carried out. Those are the three major positions you will find today. Now, if you want, if you want to write down some, some commentary, if any of you want to do more study on this, I promise you, though, you could spend a lifetime. Rivers of ink are spilled on this about... Finally, about 3.30 today, I was brain dead looking at all this. I was just absolutely brain dead after studying it all week. And, oh, there's so much on this. It, it is unbelievable, the amount of material on this. Some of you probably are acquainted with the Word Biblical Commentary series. It's a difficult series. John Golden Gay writes the Daniel volume in there. Uh, and he represents that very first school of thought, the Maccabean. If you want to get that commentary again, I, my guess is if you get it, you're going to be bringing it to me and saying, Preacher, I can't do anything with this book. Here, you have it. <laughs> another, another highly critical and advanced commentary, the Herman I series, uh, John Collins did Daniel in that. He too represents this first school of thought, the Maccabean or Antiochian school of thought. Now, if you want to get something a little easier and understand that school of thought, Wendy Witter. Wendy Witter, the Story of God Bible Commentary Series. You can get all these on Amazon. They can be delivered to your door in two or three days' time. Wendy Witter would be a much easier commentary to read and understand on this first school of thought. Okay? Joyce Baldwin in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series or Ed Young, his commentary on Daniel. Joyce Baldwin or Ed Young represent the Roman view. John Walbert would represent the eschatological view, particularly the dispensational category of that view, which is very popular. That would also be the view that you hear from Dr. John MacArthur, Dr. David Jeremiah. They would be representatives of the dispensational view. Okay? But John Walbert's commentary on Daniel is one of the better representatives of the eschatological view and the most popular view under that is the dispensation. If you didn't get those and you do want to order those, let me know and I'll, I'll help you. 
But I warn you, there is so much on this, you can get lost in the weeds. And when I tell you there's at least nine different views, because all the views have variants, I mean, that ought to tell you something how complex this issue is. With all of that said, because I know we're this late, with all that said, I want to go back to where I started tonight. Let's not lose sight of the five principles I set down at the beginning, because whichever of these views you hold to, those five principles seem to be the point that the angel Gabriel was making to Daniel. It wasn't so much that he would break out his slide rules and calendars and all that. He wants Daniel to understand these five principles. And with that in mind, you could almost argue that perhaps we overcomplicate this passage whenever we do try to overanalyze it. When we, we might put ourselves in danger of actually missing out on what Gabriel was trying to get Daniel to understand. And again, that is God answers the prayers of the righteous. Daniel, I've been sent to you. You've been praying, and I'm going to give you an answer. You are highly esteemed. God has heard your prayers, and he's dispatched me to come and give you the answer and the confidence that that holds in us when we pray. And the fact that, again, whichever school of thought you belong to, God is in charge of history. God is unfolding His plan. History is not just running amok, running crazy, with nobody in control and nobody knows how everything is going to end up one day. The Bible doesn't present that. God has His hand on everything. He's directing it. God allows bad things to happen which don't jeopardize His plans and purposes one bit. He even uses these bad things to further His purposes. He's sovereign. He's able to do that. And God's going to bring about victory for His people in the end. Evil's only going to be allowed for a determined amount of time. And then God's people are going to be ultimately, finally, completely delivered. And all of these worldly kingdoms that God has been showing Daniel, the statue, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the thigh of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet mixed with iron and clay, all of these worldly kingdoms that are going to come and go down through history, Guess what, Daniel? There's coming a time when God's clock, all of those kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of man are going to be over and God's going to establish His everlasting kingdom. So we need to understand that. And until then, we need to persist and be faithful. It won't happen the way we think it'll happen on our timetable. And, and God may surprise us some of the people and some of the things He uses to accomplish His purposes. But God's in control. And we have faith in Him 
Because he's a good God. And he doesn't lie. And one of these days, again, whichever one of these schemes you buy into, one of these days, all these kingdoms of the world are going to be over. And Christ is going to set up His eternal kingdom. And God's people will be at rest through all of eternity. Amen. And that seems to me to be what Gabriel really wanted Daniel to understand. Okay, I'm done.